Welcome to Bone, Stone, and Obsidian, a Dark Sun podcast. I'm your host, Robert. I'm Jesse. Now, we've held off talking about psionics for a long time because we didn't want to get ahead of ourselves without knowing how Wizards of the Coast was going to handle them. However, recently, Wizards released Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, and with it, it has the first official 5e psionics for, for characters. Now, we'll get into talking about that and the history of psionics, but first, let's talk about what's new with Dark Sun. Yeah. Hey folks, Robert here, cutting into the episode. We thought we were going to make it through all of psionics in this episode, but it's a bigger topic than we thought. In this episode, we talk about the history of psionics from inception to fourth edition. Next episode, we'll talk about the fifth edition updates. Now, first, Jesse released some uh, some homebrew druid kits today. Tell us about those, Jesse. Well, I've been doing a lot of character options for classic second edition Dark Sun. Many of the character classes didn't get a lot of options available in terms of customization. So I recently ran a survey asking people, what class would you like to see some more kits for recently? And the winner of that poll was Druids. So I released a small document with five new Druid kits for 2nd Edition Dark Sun. And each of them is designed for you to be able to add on to a Druid character and take them in a new direction so that you can play an animist who, instead of talking necessarily to plants and animals, communes and communicates with spirits inside of objects, as well as, of course, the, the great spirits of the land. Or the reclaimer whose focus is on restoring land that has been damaged by defiling magic and returning it back to its healthy state. There's the Pyrene Initiate, which leans a bit on some of the lore that appeared in the fourth edition version of Dark Sun, who follows the path of transformation to become a Pyrene as an endgame transformation. The Nature Mind, who's a druid that instead of developing magical abilities to shape change and communicate with creatures, develops psychic abilities to do so, along with a small, limited selection of additional psionic powers. But it's Sounds a great cool. one if you, yeah, if you want to play a druid who still casts spells and does druidy things, but you also have a, a small selection of mental defenses and maybe a few other interesting power tricks that you can call upon. And there's the Harmonist, who's a druid whose guarded lands represent sort of a, a lush combination of the elements that have come together to create a functioning ecosystem. And as a result, the Harmonist doesn't have major access to a specific element, but instead gets minor access to all of the elements. So you can check that out on the Dark Sun Reddit or on the various Dark Sun Facebook groups. I also release links to all of my content on Twitter, and it's, of course, always free. Nice. That all sounds cool. Have you ever done anything with, uh, what is it, like the, uh, I don't think they had a specific name for it, but basically like the Spirits of the Land from the City that were in uh, Lynn Abbey's book? So I have not actually worked with an, an urban Spirit of the Land idea, but that sounds like a really cool uh, notion, and I think that you've given me some inspiration for another direction to try. <laughs> there you go. Well, in addition to this, uh, it's probably worth mentioning that Mark Hope, a longtime Dark Sun aficionado, has also recently released a huge amount of material for 2nd Edition Dark Sun, available through the same sorts of resources. You can find links to his material through the Reddit Dark Sun group or on the various Dark Sun Facebook groups. But he took the tack of releasing a whole bunch of kits that are themed for characters of specific races. So if you play a, a Terran or an Elf or a Half Giant, these are kits that might represent how a character of that type would approach a, a particular class or, or how they might have a specific outlook on life. Uh, last time I checked, I think he had just released a document with 26 different kits in it. So that's a ton of useful information to inspire your Dark Sun games, even if you're not running second edition. 
you can certainly take those and use those to direct characters. So uh, I just wanted to mention that. I'm not the only one that's writing material. Definitely. And and Mark is uh, is a longtime Dark Sun fan. I I know him from the old school Dark Sun mailing list from back in the day. Um, and he started his own actual play stream, which he streams on Sundays on the Lawful Stupid Twitch channel. Uh, they're playing second edition, which I assume they're using all of the stuff that Mark released on that blog. Mm-hmm. And they started with a little knowledge and then they've moved into freedom. And I think they're on road to Uruk now. And the plan is for them to play all the way through Dragon's Crown. And so you can find this at twitch.tv slash lawful stupid RPG. And, uh, and then they upload those to YouTube afterwards. Oh, well, in the world of podcast actual plays, Josh DeVillar, also known as Aphasian Runner, has started to release a playthrough of the first chapter of Ashes of Athos, the sort of legendary adventure that, that has made its rounds. This podcast has Josh as the DM, two players who are new to Dark Sun, Ayami and Greg, as well as Chad, and you, our own, very own Robert. Uh, so. Yeah. They're using the Ashes of Athos Adventures for 4th edition, converted over to 5th edition. And that one's on Twitter at the One World Pod or on buzzsprout.com. So how has that campaign been for you? Um, it's been really fun. You know, I that's kind of what got me started into working in the industry professionally. I mean, at that point, it was all volunteer, but still, that's what got me to actually editing and writing and mm-hmm. things like that. And so even though I had a hand in some of that stuff and I've read all the adventures that was like, you know, over 10 years ago at this point. And so a lot of the things <laughs> during play were, were surprising to me. <laughs> some, some things I remembered, but um, it was also really cool because Josh, you know, he has his own, uh, his own website, but he, he released a bunch of fifth edition stuff and I chose his envisioning of the Jozal. And so my character is uh, Segos, who is a Jozal merchant wizard. And um, Josh is a fantastic dungeon master. He's been really fun to play with. Uh, it's been fun to play with new, you know, players that are brand new to Dark Sun, as well as Chad, who's a player in one of my ongoing Dark Sun games, and so is Josh. So it's been fun to play with them kind of from the other side of the table, or the other side of the screen, I should say. And the podcast is now up to episode five, and then I think six should be on his way shortly. And we finished the first chapter, but Josh has been editing them and kind of releasing them as he goes. And so I'm not sure how, how many episodes it's going to be, but uh, it's, it was really fun to play through that first chapter. That sounds amazing. I got to get me into one of these games. There you go. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, now let's, let's get into some psionics. So Jesse, what are psionics and, and when did they originate in D&D? All right. Well, let's, let's cast our minds back into the distant past. Close your eyes, open your third eye, and look, look, look. Far beyond the veil of temporal lines, and into the days when Dungeons and Dragons was new. And psionic abilities actually have a really long history in science fiction and science fantasy that has merged into fantasy as well. There's a massive library of books from the the early fantasy era, the the golden age of fantasy novels in the 60s and 70s that feature psychic powers. The Darini novels by Catherine Kurtz, the Witch World novels by Andre Norton, the Stephen Brust novels of uh, Vlad Taltov. And uh, all of these stories have different takes on psychic phenomena with characters in fantasy worlds. And original D&D is no exception to this. Now, from the, the pieces that I've gathered together, reading about the history of D&D and talking to people on the internet, some of whom were there, 
Uh, <laughs> I was not at the time. The impetus for Psyonix in D&D was at least partly an attempt to create a sort of variant supernatural power system that was point-based, as opposed to using the, the famous Vancean spell slot that D&D typically relies upon. Mm -hmm. And you can go all the way back in published D&D to the Greyhawk sourcebook for uh, the Zero Edition and see what early psionics looked like. Psionic powers in, in this set really had a strong influence of like yogi type mysticism. It was really heavily coded as being the sort of this strange spiritualism that allowed you to get in touch with your inner self and then vibrate your consciousness to a higher plane and then develop special abilities that were sort of like spells, but worked in a different way. And uh, there were trade-offs for this. So if you were a fighter who developed psionic abilities, you'd take a reduction in your strength score because you were sort of splitting your, your time between your career as a fighter and your ability to use psychic phenomenon. And uh, the system there was, was kind of an add-on, uh, but it obviously got developed and, and pushed into a more complete form when it showed up in first edition. But other D&D knockoff games of the era also sort of followed this to some degree. In the original Empire of the Petal Throne game uh, by M.A.R. Barker, all magical abilities were actually psychic phenomenon. Empire of the Petal Throne took place in a world that was in the far, far distant future. It was a colony planet that had gotten cut off from the rest of the, the galaxy. And as a result, people had fallen back into a non-technological social decline. And uh, magic users were actually using psychic powers that they unlocked by using repetition of specific words and gestures to key their minds into unleashing their abilities. Mm. I did not know that. That's cool. Yeah. In, in uh, the game Arduin by Dave Hargrave, in the early Arduin grimoires of the late 70s and early 80s, there was a psychic character class that was more of a sort of a crystal waver, spiritualist, and uh, I'm sort of operating on a different mental plane, so I always seem a little bit of out of, out of it. And this class had a more stratified set of powers that was sort of like, you develop intuitions that tell you, this thing is trapped. I sense poison here. I can sense the ghostly presence of our party member who died in the last encounter. And he's really mad that you stole his favorite socks. <laughs> and, and at higher levels, of course, they develop telepathic abilities and telekinesis and things like that. Moving forward, you get to first edition AD&D where psionics were relegated to an appendix in the player's handbook, and they were really rare, but potentially really powerful. You'd basically, you'd make a character, and then as an additional step after you made your, your ability score rolls, you'd roll percentage dice, and you had a very, very teeny tiny chance of having psionic ability slightly higher if you had really high ability scores, especially intelligence and wisdom. Psionic abilities were odd because it was totally random what you would get. And you might get a character who had like, one telepathic defense mode and the ability to talk to animals, or you might get a character who had a bazillion powers and, and a massive reservoir of psionic ability, in addition to all of their class features from being a fighter or magic user, a thief or a monk or whatever they were. The, uh, the powers were supposed to scale over levels. So you'd get one minor power as a first level character. And then as you gained levels, you would unlock other abilities. But they would then have their own staggered progression. So if I unlocked my capstone ability to, I don't know, disintegrate things at, at ninth level, my disintegration function is very minuscule when I first get it. And then I still have to keep gaining levels in order for it to get stronger. But whatever I got at first level, maybe the ability to object read things and get psychic impressions off of them, 
that would already be really powerful by the time I was ninth level because I had been developing it the whole way. So it was sort of this amortized series of power unlocks, which is a kind of a design that we would actually see come back for other things in later editions of D&D. But the drawback, the kicker here is that because it was totally random, you could get this mountain of additional powers just sort of dumped on a character if you happen to get lucky with the dice. And a lot of players had a pretty strong pushback against that, said, oh, I don't like this because one party member could just randomly get all of these special abilities that nobody else gets. Right. And uh, one of the things that a lot of people missed was that if you had a psionic character in your group and they used their powers routinely, you changed the random encounter tables. It would cause one in four of your encounters randomly to turn into psionic encounters. <laughs> and if your character didn't have the skills to protect everyone in the party from an errant mind flayer or sue monster or whatever, this could go really, really badly for you. And since your power selection was kind of random, you didn't <laughs> guarantee that you had like a telepathic defense that could shield everyone. So psionics was a really, really random sort of, of element, really risky for your group if your, your DM was following the rules. And it was a good way to get your brain burned out by demons and devils in high-level games because most of them had psionic abilities that they would gladly use against you in telepathic combat. And the way that psionics worked, if you had burned through a bunch of your power, there were some powers that could just reduce your character to a gibbering wreck or kill them outright, just in very fast telepathic combat. And mm -hmm. the sort of the final follow-up to all of this was in Dragon Magazine number 78, where they released a psionicist class. And this is really interesting from the, the design perspective of AD&D, because the class definitely has the, some of these features that we see in later editions, where you have a psionic strength power total, and this goes up as you gain levels. You pick a, a small, limited number of powers, and you learn more of these powers as you gain levels. There were some design hiccups as well, like the class had a, a, a mutating hit die. At lower levels, you would get a better hit die, like a rolling a d10 for hit points, like a fighter. Hmm. At higher levels, you'd roll a d6 or a d4. And the psionicist was allowed a large selection of weapons. And the reasoning given for this in the, the class was, well, they can't survive low levels without this. They, <laughs> they don't have a lot of powers, so they need weapons on all hit points. Mm -hmm. But if that argument holds, then why don't magic users get that too? Yeah, so right. it seemed like a weird choice. Yeah, looking, looking at that class, uh, if you, if yeah. you, it said it was created by author Arthur Collins. And uh, mm -hmm. it's interesting that at the beginning of that, uh, so, so in, in that, Dragon Magazine number 78, there's a whole, there's several articles about psionics yeah. in it. But in the beginning of the, the psionicist class, it says, Editor's Introduction, by courteous arrangement with Catherine Kurtz, author of the Darany and Camber Fantasy Trilogies, this article and the mm -hmm. ones following it incorporate certain elements of the Darany universe into its description of the psionicist character class for AD&D. So I haven't had a chance to read these do you know, are some of the things that we, that have been brought forward from that? Well, yes and no. The, the Darany novels posit sort of a, a, a fantastical version of historical Europe mm. that has a group of people, the Darany, who are like humans, except they have psychic powers. But beyond that, a lot of the novel follows a lot of like, there's, there's a, a massive and powerful church and there's a feudal system and there's wars going on on the borders against you know, another empire and all of that sort of stuff. So it's, it's structured very much almost, I'd say like the, the way that uh, Martin's game of Thrones work says, okay, there's, there's a whole bunch of these recognizable elements, but then we've also added in some fantastical stuff. 
instead of being more of a high fantasy like David Edding's sort of work. Mm. So the idea of there being a splinter offshoot of humans that have these phenomenal psychic abilities has sort of carried forward. In third edition, we get the Elan as a character type who are humans that have been reborn as a fully psychic entity. And uh, in Dark Sun, of course, we have the Velici, who are an offshoot of humanity who are all uh, women and all extremely powerful psionically. Mm -hmm. So those sorts of elements have, have, have certainly influenced later editions. But to the best of my knowledge, at least, we have not seen the Darini appear again as a and d supplement. Catherine Kurtz is still alive, though, so there is certainly the possibility for someone writing her and saying, hey, I'd like to bring the Darini back to D&D in the future. <laughs> do you think that reading the books, would that be something that people should do if they really want to see kind of how original psionics work? Uh, I think that the they are definitely a good inspiration for people who are thinking about D&D as sort of a low fantasy, medievalist, uh, hundred years war sort of set setting. Plus, there's a secret phenomenon of people with psychic powers. And then there are various power groups like the church and whatnot, who are not necessarily on the level with these guys. And they're like, oh, we, we think that they're bad and we have to, to kill them. And no, no, I'm 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 just a good guy like the rest of you and and whatnot. Um, it it especially would be something I think that would appeal to to fans uh, not just of D and D history but of the Greyhawk setting, which is really built on the bones of that sort of hundred years war era of of large armies moving around a a very muddled sort of continental map and and different power groups and different nations all constantly struggling against each other, and uh, adventurers are some guy who happened to muster out from the latest border skirmish and he's still got his suit of male armor and his sword and he's making his money by selling his services and then he's got a buddy with him who happens to be an elf from the the, the fairy forest and the elf knows all sorts of magic and whatnot and they work together as a team and mm. they fight crime you know <laughs> nice so looking through here that with the scientist you know there's psp points in here or mm -hmm. uh, and and sciences and devotions uh is this where this first came up or uh had it had they been included so, previously this was all in the the first edition appendix and the sciences okay. class is basically taking that and turning it into here's a character class so we can have a way to introduce this as a regimented system in your game and really what the sciences does is say okay instead of you just roll and there is a chance that you get these amazing abilities or a chance that you just get some extra garbage to your stuff you can decide i want my character's thing to be psychic powers and instead of being a magic user or a fighter or a thief or a cleric, you're a psychic and that's what you do. And there is a system for how it works and a system for what sorts of powers you gain as you gain levels so that this character can fit with other parties, have something to contribute and have a specific niche. Hmm. And uh, of course, since you're a, a huge old timey Dark Sun fan, you can see how this system of psionic power points, defense modes and divisions of powers got carried forward into second edition. Yeah. So looking here, you know, we can see that one, one of the things, you know, that I always thought was interesting uh, from second edition and actually apparently was from before that was the idea that psionics is different. So mm -hmm. there's part of that Dragon Magazine 78 has an article about that. Um, I, I'll definitely have to read that because I'd never I'd never seen this before. So I'm definitely gonna have to check that out. But um, in second edition with the complete psionics handbook, Steve Winter wrote that, and I was under the impression that Steve created the class and everything. So, so finding out that 
you know, Dragon Magazine 78 is around is uh, is, mm-hmm. is pretty mind blowing to me. I'm not definitely have to go back and read all those things. But with the Complete Sonics Handbook, Steve kind of included a lot of the details, obviously, from uh, from that Dragon Magazine 78 as a class and then sort of expanded it. And it looks like, you know, he kind of kept the Indian kind of mysticism, um, but he also included the, the art kind style of, definitely reflects that. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. And he also included those kind of pseudo scientific names, which we're all sort of familiar with and for good or ill have sort of stuck with in a lot of ways. And I think that's made, Mm -hmm. that's been one of the things that has sort of been difficult to bring the class and the powers forward through the editions. I I would agree that there's a strong pushback that crops up from time to time of people saying psionics feels too science fiction. It feels like space Mm -hmm. game stuff. And that the powers have always been things like, cell adjustment and molecular manipulation and it's like i'm living in a world where characters don't have cell theory and don't know what molecules <laughs> exactly. are why are my powers named right, like right. this but <laughs> certainly um mr winter did a just a phenomenal lift taking what you know was an old article and some inspiration from stuff and turning it into this massive tome that that any dark sun aficionado is is familiar with also i just realized that i made a a, a mistake earlier i said that psionics appeared in the greyhawk supplement for original D that's incorrect. It's in Eldritch Wizardry. Mm. Okay. Not that it makes a difference. Yeah, but no, that detail is good because <laughs> if you want to go look it up, they can they can find it in Eldritch Wizardry. Right. Wizardry. So what Steve did is he, you know, he he kind of kept a lot of those uh, touch points that we have kind of talked about the psionic strength points, um, attack mm-hmm. and defense modes, the devotions and sciences, and so that was released at the same time, pretty much uh, with Dark Sun in 1991, and so mm-hmm. it was obvious that. You know, I won't say obvious, but, you know, maybe in hindsight, it was obvious that they, you know, they saw bringing psionics into Dark Sun as a, probably a way to boost the psionics handbook sales. Because at this point, I would imagine that maybe some of the um, I'd have to actually go back and look and to see when the psionics handbook was released, because at that point we had, you know, they were releasing those red kind of fake leather uh, covered books, right. like the complete books, all of the splat books. Yeah, yeah. This was a yeah. hallmark of second edition when it was. They realized that just like some of the other game lines that were out at the time, were able to say, "Hey, we're we've got all these different types of characters that you can play, and we're going to release books about all of them and just rake in the money month after month." And D and D decided to get on that money train, and we got the complete fighter, the complete thief, the complete psionicist, the complete barbarian, the complete ninja, complete everything. <laughs> so I'm I'm wondering if if sort of they had already released a bunch of those and then found out that they weren't maybe selling that well. And maybe we're like, well, let's, you know, let's connect this to, to a new setting to make it sell better. What do you think about that? Well, my understanding is that the, the complete line of books were solid sellers. And, and you've mm. got to remember that before second edition, pre-1989, Dungeons and Dragons, the, the, the sellers, the, the regular releases for a long time were adventure modules. Because you had a player's handbook, you had a DMG, you had a monster manual. And then mm. in, around, you know, the mid-80s, you get Unearthed Arcana and Oriental Adventures. Dungeoneer's Survival Guide, Wilderness Survival Guide, mm-hmm. Manual of the Plains. But there's this whole period from 79 to the, the mid-80s where there's just adventure modules being sold. And any game designer can tell you that adventure modules do not sell well compared to your evergreen titles, which is things like the Player's Handbook, stuff that everyone needs a copy of this in order to play the game. If I'm a new player, I have to buy this. And year after year, that's going to be a big seller. But these sorts of supplemental source books that extend your rule set, there's a huge attraction to a specific subgroup of your players and dungeon masters 
who love these new options. And so you start churning out every few months, here's the complete fighter, here's the complete thief, complete wizard, and so on. And you've got people who are going to buy them all. And dungeon masters, of course, are incentivized to buy them all because even if you as a dungeon master don't necessarily need stuff from the complete ninja, one of your players is going to get it and is going to want to use it. And now you need to know what it says. So these are a, were a pretty good model. But as we saw, the line eventually became so long that it, it, it makes it so that you get this rules bloat in your system. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have this massive shelf on your library for all of these fiddly little things. And sometimes writers wind up not talking to each other. And you'll get things like a, a non-weapon proficiency that appears in one book. And then it appears in another book with a totally different description right. using different stats and different points and, and things like that. It can can lead to, to player confusion. It makes it so that it becomes a barrier to, to people entering the game. But back in 91, when the Psionics Handbook and Dark Sun came out, this was a new experiment for D&D. And as far as I know, people loved it. It's interesting that you mention this because Steve Winter does have a blog and he talks about that very phenomenon. The idea that the more that you extend your rule set, the more that you create interesting things for people to buy, but the more you make it harder for people to get into the game. But uh, when the Psionics Handbook came out, it was only the fifth one in oh, okay. this line of supplements. Mm. So uh, this was still early in the process. And of course, as we know, Dark Sun was at least partially influenced by the John Carter of Mars stories. And if you read the books, psychic powers are a really big reoccurring element of those stories. Carter actually saves the entire planet using psychic powers that he learned. So I, I think that that inspiration sort of carried through um, among the other elements of Dark Sun. And when the, the designers got together and were like, okay, let's talk about how magic and supernatural powers work. They said, okay, well, we've got these, these inspirations of sword and sandal and, you know, uh, Dark Sun's got that sword and planet bit coming out from the princess of Mars and whatnot, you know, mm -hmm. red sands on a desert world that's dying. Yeah. And then there's nomadic people with psychic powers who fight each other with clubs and spears. You know, yeah. there's a there's a lot of similarity there. And the Martians look very much like the Vikrine. What uh, I forget what those what that race is. It's the uh Tharks. Tharks, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, definitely definitely borrowed a lot there. And speaking yeah. of borrowing, it sounds like uh it looks like, you know, when Traveler came out in nineteen ninety seven, it also had psionics and they kind of had um they had powers, you know, power ratings, and they they also continue with the scientific nomenclature that uh, that the D and D stuff had. Yeah, if if you read the review of the Psionics Handbook on the DMs Guild, um, they talk about how uh, a lot of the Psionics Handbook stuff seems like it, it follows the categories that were established by Julian May in the um, Pleiocene Exile saga of novels, which I have read. But there are some significant departures, and I thought that Traveler's psionic system actually seemed like a closer match. Traveler mm. breaks down psionics according to telepathy and remote senses, and they have an awareness ability, which is basically body awareness, which maps to psychometabolism. And they follow the same idea that you have a rating of power, and uh, the higher ra your rating of power, the more powers you can use. And with practice, you develop more and more abilities. So if you are someone who's a game designer and has been in the industry for a decade and someone says, hey, why don't you do a book of psychic powers? And you're looking at like, hmm, what are some ways that I can categorize this? Well, you look at how original D&D did it and first edition D&D and say, okay, people know what mind thrust and psionic blast are from these earlier editions. So we want these familiar things to still be here. 
And then you say, okay, but I need a, an, a system architecture. And Traveler has already done that. And so I think there probably was some inspiration, but only Steve Winter would know for sure. <laughs> so one of the kind of interesting things that I really enjoyed uh, about the second edition Psionics was the fact that it was sort of the, all the powers were were kind of divorced from level progression. Mm-hmm. Of course, they had like their psionic power costs, which which was somewhat limiting, but it kind of moved away from like, oh, it's a fifth level spell or whatever. Like you could get powers at any level as long as you had the prerequisites and as long as you had the psionic strength points to to spend. So I, I really like that aspect of sort of mix and match, which I don't think was really, at least, at least to my knowledge, was really anywhere within the game at the time. Yeah, yeah. The the idea of having these prerequisite chains was a pretty new one for the, the game industry and certainly for D&D at the time. The idea that if you know how to do this thing psionically, you can learn how to do this other thing. If you know how to contact someone's mind and mess with it, you can make it so they can't see you. And the, the psionic system was interesting because without that scaling, it's like, okay, I've got a ballistic attack power and I can fling a stone at someone and, and use telekinetic force to make it go really fast. And it does a D6 of damage. And it doesn't matter if I'm a first level psionicist or a 20th level psionicist. I spend this many points and it does a D6 of damage. There was no level scaling. And instead, your shift was you're supposed to get your big guns at mid levels and you get things like domination and disintegrate. And it's just if the enemy fails to save, the fight is over. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was a really different balance point than the usual systems that D&D has. Although, I mean, there are obviously similarities. Disintegrate is also a six-level wizard spell in second edition and so on. But there was no scaling of these sorts of things. I mean, technically, there's the magnify, metapsionic power, which you can use in order to make something do double damage or whatever. And it increases the cost by 25 times or something ridiculous. <laughs> so so let's just say there was no good way to level scale your powers and leave it at that. Yeah, and if you failed your roll badly, you could end up killing yourself. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Depending on your power, bad things could happen if yeah. you really failed your role because because they didn't work like spells. It wasn't, you know, I do this thing and it happens right. and then it might or might not work depending on the enemy's save. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a skill. It's a non-weapon proficiency. I make a roll. I might screw up my attempt to do it yeah. and the power might go off. It might go off really well or it might fail really badly or it could just fizzle and cost me a little bit of psionic strength. Mm-hmm. That was another thing that I think I really liked just the idea that you weren't necessarily sure if it was going to work all the time. And so it wasn't a spell like, you know, with the spells, you still had saves or you had attacks or whatever. But with these, you you Mm -hmm. weren't really sure if it was going to work every time. Yeah, it was a little inconsistent, too, because you had to activate the power. And then some powers you had to make an attack roll and some powers the enemy got to save. And sometimes there were combinations. So you could get into double or triple jeopardy where you had multiple ways for your power to fail sometimes. But a lot of this was also balanced in the powers themselves by saying, this power is based off your wisdom score. This other power is based off your wisdom score minus seven. So if something was a really phenomenal power, it might be harder to activate. And thus, if you wanted to be really good at it, instead of branching out into multiple powers, you might spend multiple picks on the same power just to be really like, I'm really good at crushing people's minds. Mm -hmm. And then, so I kind of feel like there must have been you know, a lot of feedback that came in about psionics. I mean, maybe they didn't get a big chance to play test them because, you know, a few years later, when second edition revised came out for Dark Sun, it had a new system in it. It was a switch from the non-weapon proficiency base to a Thaco base um, that was called Mental Thaco. Yeah. And, and it kind of changed the way psionics worked. 
and I'm trying to think if if we if we use that in my games or if we, I, I feel like we keep the old system. How about you? Yeah. When I am playing second edition Dark Sun, I tend to use the older system. Mthaco mm -hmm. is interesting from a designer's perspective because it's an attempt at system unification mm -hmm. to say, we know how combat works and everyone uses combat in their D&D &D games, except the, the person over there that's playing their, you know, Victorian romance balls in a D&D &D setting. Okay. <laughs> Which is totally legitimate, but 90, 98% of your player base out there, they know what Thacko is, they know how to make an attack roll, they know how to fight. So we're going to use this same system for psionics instead of non-weapon proficiencies. Because non-weapon proficiencies in the second edition player's handbook are an optional rule, and not everyone uses them. So <laughs> when you add psionics, it's like, well, we have this thing that relies on a system that maybe not everybody knows or uses. Mm -hmm. So they import it over and says, okay, you make an attack roll with your psionic power, and you might have to try and hit the mind of your target. Or if you're just trying to activate a power, you hit the mental armor class of that power. And that's their way of saying some powers are more difficult than others. It's, it's the difficulty rating. But your goal becomes less about sort of cautious mental dueling with telepathic combat and more just I want to run my opponent out of power points. So it feels less like there are interesting interactions in your, your mental combat and more of, I'm just going to keep hitting them with powers until they run out of points or I run out of points. And in the meantime, my friend is trying to stab them with his impaler. Yeah, I feel like they, I feel like they, they, they might have kind of seen what was going on in like Shadowrun where, you know, Deckers mm -hmm. were like playing their own minigame. And that was yeah. basically what was happening with psionics a little bit, because you had to have like your, you know, you had to have tangents and things like that. And so all of that right. was sort of separate from what was happening, you know, quote unquote, in the real world. So this was like happening in the mindscape, which is actually something that I love and something that I really want to include in my games. And so it's very difficult to not make it be like a mind, like a, like a completely separate game. And so I just try to describe it that way. Uh, and so what we're talking about here is the idea that psionics happens in a mindscape, which is the place mm -hmm. when two minds meet, they kind of create this alternate dimension sort of, and that's where they kind of do combat. And all of the Dark Sun books, the novels, uh, short stories, they use that. Yeah. Um, and that was really highlighted a lot in the the Will and the Way book, mm -hmm. uh, which is the Dark Sun psionics book. and they included an expanded combat system, which the core combat system has like attack modes and defense modes. And then in the Will and the Way, they included the Harbinger system, which, mm -hmm. which basically for each attack and defense mode, there were five additional Harbingers, which were kind of different ways that your psionics would take form within the mindscape. And so then you had like, you know, 25 of these uh, Harbingers and defense modes for, for each um, you know, either attacking or defending. And so it made it, you mm -hmm. know, it did like, it sounds cool and it sounds fun. And each, each harbinger and each uh, defense mode, you know, interacted differently, but it ended up being the same thing, you know, as like when you first see that, that chart in, it might've been in first edition, but I know it was in second edition, the chart of like slashing, piercing and bludgeoning weapons versus different kinds of armor, yeah. you know, like everybody loves that chart, but I don't think anybody uses it. <laughs> Oh gosh, I was in a, an interesting argument about the the roots of that chart a while back. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the so the the 
you're you're absolutely right. I think in comparing it to the the Decker and Shadowrun, that this becomes sort of a side game mm-hmm. that's very rich with possibilities, where you're visualizing the telepathic struggle between two minds as one tries to overthrow the other, or get under its defenses, or or sneak in somehow, or become something that the other mind fears so badly that it can't resist. And you have this fascinating interplay, but it means that psionic combat now takes longer. People have to know more. Like, oh, not only do I need to know this defense mode and what it's good against, I have to know all these harbingers and what what combos are going to work best. Mm -hmm. And that means it can slow the game down. And it's a lot for the dungeon master to narrate. But it also is like a really central part of that mind-to-mind combat if you want to have telepathic battles. And I think that one of the, the hurdles is DMs didn't have a lot of guidance about this isn't an, an everyday food. This isn't something that should happen in every single combat. Telepathic enemies who can stand toe-to-toe with your psionicist and fight them in a mindscape like this are special. And that means that the mindscape is cool, but it's not something that's going to necessarily happen every time. Especially because not every psionicist is even a telepath. If you're playing a psychokineticist, you're just uh, flinging telepa- uh, telekinetic damage at people. Mm-hmm. You might not even have a telepathic attack mode. Yeah. So no mindscape for you. <laughs> Definitely. So when third edition came around, they revamped things, although they tried to, mm-hmm. you know, they tried to keep a lot of the the feel of of it, but unifying it into kind of the third edition system. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Well, we got the psionics handbook that got followed up in 3.5 with the expanded psionics handbook and then expanded on again with the complete psionics handbook. And believe me, if you're talking to someone about which books they need to have in order to understand psionics in D&D. The fact that there's a complete psionics handbook in third edition and second edition, <laughs> and then there's another one that's just called the psionics handbook, and that the expanded psionics handbook is not an expansion of psionics is confusing. <laughs> yeah. Well, the expanded psionics, <laughs> that was like 3.5, right? Yeah, that's the 3.5, the, the big hefty tome, because they mm-hmm. first did the 3.0 psionics handbook right. uh, just to float like, is anyone going to buy this? Mm-hmm. And it worked, and people liked it. And then, then we got the expanded book. And then we got the complete Psionics book. And then Psionics became a central part of Eberron. And mm-hmm. um, we get the Psionicist as a, a class uh, turned into the Scion class. And this is turned into a more cerebral introspective class that's sort of closer to being what the third edition Sorcerer is. You yeah. have a limited suite of powers and you can mix and match them. But you are definitively a power caster. You don't use armor. You have a super limited selection of weapons and your fighting skills are, and hit points are miserably low. And this is a bit of a change because the second edition psionicist, they said, oh, well, you have to be a little bit physically fit to do psionics because you're burning your body's power to do these things. And so the, the second edition psionicist had some combat ability. He could use light armor or a limited selection of weapons, fought better than a wizard. Third edition, it's like, no, no, you mess people up with your mind. That's mm-hmm. how this works. And then psionics itself got hugely overhauled. Yeah, yeah. So they turned it into almost like a spell-like system, but it included power points. Mm-hmm. And so that was like a major, a major change. The the powers all of a sudden came in levels, which you know mm-hmm. is just like spells. And they kept the power points by introducing augmentation, which I, I liked. I thought that was cool. Mm-hmm. But they kind of got rid of all the prerequisites. So that you know, so it kind of evened out the power level so no more low-level characters having disintegrate or domination or anything like that yeah yeah it was clearly like designed to say okay all of our spell casters have nine levels of powers that they can use and here's where things fit in each of these levels and then the psionicist got its powers fitted in there and some of their powers were just 
rehashing of existing spells with the name psionic appended <laughs> at, uh, at the end yeah and others were recreations or re-envisionings of psychic abilities from former editions like well, what does psionic blast look like in this edition what level is that power how many power points does it take what happens if you augment it and make it more powerful and they really took the uh the opportunity at every point to try to divorce it a bit from the pseudoscience like that's why you know psionicist kind of sounds like science scientist mm -hmm. and so that's why it became the scion that you know they kind of try to remove that pseudoscience element to it yeah and i think yeah they wanted I it think to it be worked, but... less of a mouthful yeah yeah it, it definitely they they looked at okay how do we turn this away from talking about these sciencey things and more like getting back to that idea of like resonating energies and crystal mm -hmm. manipulation and stuff like that yeah there's a lot of crystals uh yeah. one thing that i i gotta say that i did not like is the the meta creativity what is it called discipline mm, yeah so that was something they added so in previous editions there were you know you have different disciplines you know your telepathy your telekinesis that kind of thing and they added meta creativity and i i felt like like it was just it was out of place to me creating something from nothing sort of this weird ectoplasmy, you know, ectoplasm, what do you want to call it? Ectoplasm? Ectoplasm, yeah. 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 Manifesting stuff yeah, out yeah. of plasma, out of the ether. Like so, mind powers to me. Yeah, sort of this this idea that you're you're casting your thoughts into the astral realm, the realm of pure thought, and then using that to shape something out of a platonic ideal and then give it real substance, albeit temporarily in the physical world. And some of that does show up in the Pliocene Exile Saga, the books that I mentioned before. Mm. There's There are some characters who can do that sort of thing. But overall, that's a really uncommon motif for psychic phenomenon in yeah. fiction. And uh, it definitely felt like in the original implementation of third edition psionics, they leaned heavily into the idea that each discipline was tied to a particular ability score. And mm -hmm. that meant you got to have six disciplines because you have six ability yeah, scores. Yep. And since they had gotten rid of the idea of metapsionics as a discipline, they had to come up with something else to fill it. And that's where they went. That's another good point that we, we didn't really touch on. There's this idea. It's um, when kind of making characters, you know, if you have to spread yourself out too wide on your choices of ability mm -hmm. scores, it kind of makes you weak, right? And so there's this kind of idea of multiple ability dependency, which you'll see it as yeah. MAD a lot of times. And, and, and that is true. You know, one of the things, that's one of the things I liked about, even though there weren't like, you know, in third edition, you had the ardent divine mind, lurk, psychic warrior, soul knife, all these other kind of classes. Whereas in second edition, mm -hmm. you just sort of picked your kind of primary, uh, primary discipline. And then that was sort of your, you know, it was sort of your subclass, although it wasn't technically, but it, it kind of was. And so they kind of moved away from that with the third edition version because it you know it did make them yeah. very kind of all over the place yeah and in second edition you're you you only used three different stats really your powers were based on wisdom intelligence or constitution so and and a psionicist had minimums in those you couldn't even be a psionicist if you didn't have a 15 wisdom so you knew that there were going to be some powers that you were going to be pretty good with no matter what but everything else was sort of like it guided your power selection. Oh, my character only has a 12 intelligence score. Maybe I want to stay away from powers that rely on intelligence. Mm -hmm. When third edition comes around, you start splitting it up even further. And now you're looking at like, well, either my character has to have good stats in everything. Good luck with that. Or I have to say, okay, my two best stats are this and all of my power choices are going to be from powers that are connected to those stats. And there's some people who really hate that. They're like, I want to be able to just pick any of these powers and not have to worry about it. And there's other people who really love it, who are like, 
oh, the fact that I'm playing a psionicist with a high intelligence makes me distinct from a psionicist with a high wisdom because we're going to use different powers mm -hmm. based on what our strengths are. Yeah. So with third edition, you know, Athos.org, the burnt world of Athos, you know, we converted mm -hmm. the setting to third edition and we kind of kept using the, you know, the published books. We kept the idea mm -hmm. of, of wild talents in there and, and just sort of kind of left it, you know, left things as close to the world as we could, you know, using the yeah. third edition setting. Yeah, that was an enormous amount of work that Athos.org did, basically taking over supporting the Dark Sun world for the entire edition run. Uh, there were, you know, a couple of articles like Dragon 319 has the uh, article from Dave Noonan where he does sort of a quick and dirty dragon article conversion of Dark Sun to third edition. But it was made using what was one of their design principles at the time, which is we'll, we really need this to include everything that we've published. So since the complete psionics handbook had come out and introduced new psychic character types like main ads mm -hmm. and, and whatnot, mm -hmm. it included rules for all of these things that had never existed before in Dark Sun. Some Dark Sun fans felt like, oh, they're trying to shoehorn in stuff that doesn't fit in the setting. Others were like, oh, this is a natural evolution of the game moving forward. But Athos.org was really the, the crew that did the heavy lifting and said, okay, we're going to take a holistic approach to Dark Sun and look at everything that we can get and what belongs, what fits well, how do we make things in the, the new edition feel like they are part of the Dark Sun world. So kudos to that group for, wow. The amount of, of design work that was just done as a labor of love there is pretty immense. Yeah, there's a ton of content there. And you can still get all that stuff still for free. So check that out at athos.org. Yeah, yeah. If you, you need any inspiration, adventures, information about what, what the world of Athos is like in other places that didn't get developed, that's your, your go-to. So let's move on to 4th edition. So 4th edition ah. was fantastic because... That brought me back to D&D because &D, I had kind of stopped playing. Um, and when I heard mm -hmm. that Dark Sun was coming back out for 4th edition, that really brought me back. And so in 4th edition, they had they, they included psionics as a power source. So they had arcane, divine, martial, primal, and shadow. And then, and then they added psionics as a power source. So it had its own link that was kind of, you know, to, to the previous versions, they kind of kept the psionic powers. And they also added or sorry they kept the psionic points and they added mm -hmm. they kind of made monk a sort of psionic character as well yeah the psionic striker archetype the monk and i really liked that because previously the monk had always been sort of a, a, an odd fit in D, &D. Mm -hmm. you know it it goes way back to the the apocryphal story is that uh people of the the D and D crew in the the mid seventies were watching shows like Kung Fu and Bruce Lee movies, and we're like, I want to play that guy. <laughs> and Gygax didn't really want to do it because he was not super invested in bringing all of that into a medieval Europe fantasy game. But he realized, or someone told him, that if you don't publish it, someone else will, and someone else is going to get a foot in the door with a version that's more popular than what we put out later. And so he put together the the monk class hmm. but it was always sort of like a, a hodgepodge of supernatural abilities yeah. in earlier editions in second edition the monk gets relegated to being like a kit for the priest class that doesn't really have <laughs> much special or distinctive about it other than instead of using weapons they punch people and then in uh third edition you know the monk returns as a, a full class but it has its own key powers and key points and a, a specific list of things that it can do and what it can power with these abilities and uh so it, it always felt like it, it 
it had its own niche, but that niche didn't mesh well with what was going on in the, the rest of the game. So when the monk turns into a psionic striker in 4th edition, you finally get the, ah, that satisfaction of this fits into how the power structures of the world work. And it harkens all the way back to 0th edition when they're talking about yogis and CDs and transcendental meditation. It's like, yes, this is a character who's in tune with their mind, in tune with their body, in tune with their spirit. And by developing and cultivating that self-awareness, they have developed these incredible powers that, that allow them to do these supernatural feats. Nice. Yeah. So, you know, we're, you know, we're in still in fourth edition. Uh, they kind of retained the idea of augmentation, which made the classes distinct. Because one of the things in fourth edition people complained about was that a lot of the powers made the classes feel like they were the same. They all mm -hmm. worked in the same way, or at least very similar ways. And the idea that you could use your PowerPoints to augment your powers definitely made them feel, Psionics feel different in 4th edition, which I really, really liked. I really loved the idea of the Ardent and the Battle Mind. Like, they felt different from the Scion in, in a good way. Like, I really mm -hmm. enjoyed the fact that the Ardent was, was like this emotional character. And, and that yeah. could have been because I had a player that played a, a Templar Ardent that was just such a great character and and the powers really felt like they worked well both as psionic and as something that a templar would have and so that really pushed that for me i don't remember in third edition as i'm looking back here the ardent was there in third edition but i really don't recall anything about it so yeah the the ardent appeared in the complete psionic for third edition but it was more of a cleric mm. knockoff who had a psionic connection to a universal principle sort of like philosophy class okay. from second edition and through that principle they could establish psychic powers so you might have an ardent who was devoted to the cosmic principle of good or the cosmic principle of mental power and then through that connection you channel psychic energy and you might be more cleric like where you worship a god that represents this principle. And so you are getting, you know, divine bolts of inspiration that awaken your psychic powers. Or you might be more of a philosopher who's just, I am in tune with this fundamental principle of the cosmos and it gives me these powers. But in terms of like how they fought and what sorts of gear they used and what kinds of power selections they had, they certainly felt a lot more like a mm. cleric. And then of course the divine mind was your, your ersatz paladin who had a limited selection of those ardent like powers but also was heavily invested in doing frontline fighting and had psychic auras that they mm -hmm. used in order to protect and, and enhance their entire party. Nice. Yeah. And so those, you know, those, as they move those forward, I, you know, the reworking of them into fourth edition, I think they did a great job. I mean, even the battle mind was awesome. Yeah. Like all those classes I thought were really added to the system. What, what I really loved um, about your comment with the Ardent there being a character who's really emotive is that one of the complaints some players had about 4th edition was that, uh, like you said, all the powers felt very samey. Like, if I activate an at-will power and I do two weapon <laughs> damage plus root the opponent, like, am I a fighter? Right. Am I a wizard? Mm -hmm. Does it matter? And, and other editions of D&D, spell casting is totally mechanically distinct from swinging a sword. And it means that your character right. feels different. What you are doing to engage the game mm -hmm. feels different. So it feels like your, your character has a, a specific niche. So what they did in the psionics in fourth edition is that they loaded that onto the class itself as part of its emotional tone. The ardent is a character, you know, the psionicist is, is a rigid mind. 
He's a, a student of mental power who is so disciplined, so focused, and so knowledgeable that he's able to bend the rules of the universe to his will. The Ardent is the opposite. The Ardent is the character who has a commitment to some idea and emotion that is so strong that they can force the universe to step back and go, no, okay, I, I give because you are so committed to this that you are unstoppable in, in this area. And so it meant that your character class sort of informed your decisions about how you play your character. So that was a really definitely, neat touch. Definitely. So we are, we're pushing on an hour already and Ooh. we're just about to get into fifth edition. Yeah. What do you think, Jesse? Do you think we should, we should call it here and make fifth edition its own episode or should we push on and have an extra long one? Gosh, what do you think the fans want? Would they want a two-parter so they can see the look back and the look forward as our two separate parts or do you think they want to get it all at once and, and have no bathroom break? <laughs> let's, uh, you know, let's make this a two-parter because I okay. feel like there's not only, you know, what Wizards of the Coast has been doing with Dark Sun, or sorry, with, with Psionics, mm -hmm. and what they, you know, what they kind of talked about for a long time and then what they've actually done, but then also what we want to see in there. And I know you have some very specific yeah. thoughts. You wrote up a great sort of article about what Psionics looks like and what it could look like. So I know both of us have a lot of ideas on psionics for fifth edition. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's make that a part two. Okay. Yeah. Sounds. Yeah. Good. This was this was great. I learned a lot here. Thank you, Jesse, uh, for um, for really laying out these notes. They're really great uh, and really made a great show. Thank you again for bringing me on. I'm I'm really honored to be able to. Yeah, work and with you. I really yeah. hope that you know this this past you know year we i think we've only released like two episodes you know just with covid and everything yeah, but it's been it's been yeah a, a I, I would like to get back to doing this more you know like once a month like we had been doing previously so hopefully we can we can continue yeah but <laughs> watsy's gonna have to release more dark sun content <laughs> Definitely. To do that. so um if you want to get a hold of us you can email us at obsidian .org, and you can find us on twitter at, at obsidian athos uh where can we find you online jesse uh, you can find me on Twitter at, under my name as Jesse Heinig. You'll also occasionally see me lurking around the various Dark Sun Facebook groups and the Dark Sun Reddit. Nice. And you can find me on Twitter at Radu76. That's R-A-D-D-U-76. You can email me at Radu at Athos.org. I'm in all of the Dark Sun groups everywhere uh, on Discord. There's a Dark Sun Discord, uh, the Facebook groups. Uh, there's one on MeWe, which is you know, not used very often, but if you're on <laughs> MeWe, check that out. So yeah, so I think that's going to do it for episode 19 as we talk about the history of Dark Sun and Psionics. And episode 20 then will be about Dark Sun Psionics for 5th edition. Yeah, the future of Psionics in 5th edition. There you go. All right, thanks everybody. Have a good Thank night. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. Stone and Obsidian is hosted by the Misdirected Mark Network, the media arm of Encoded Designs.